Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie. And I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring different worldviews together into conversations about science in Indian country. All right, we're going to um, we're going to get started. It's eight thirty-three. Um, we'll let people kind of trickle in. Um, crowd is much uh, bigger than we thought. Um, there's a few. There's definitely a couple of chairs over here. Um, if people want to sit a little bit closer. That table feels like an outlier. Um, Do you want more paper? Yeah, if you wouldn't mind maybe passing out. I ran out of the free surveys. I think I printed like 35. Um, great, so uh, thank you all for coming here this early morning, packing this room. Um, my name is, is Tom Mackey. I am of uh, Gaelic... Irish descent. Uh, I am a, a PhD student at the State University of New York, College of Environmental Science and Forestry in uh, Syracuse, New York. Collectively, this, this whole region that we call upstate, um, it's everywhere outside of, the, outside of New York City. Uh, and um, my field is, is environmental education and interpretation. Um, and I'll let Annie introduce herself. Uh, um, Annie Sorel through East West, um, Mike, Tommy over here. Uh, I go to SUNY ESF. I'm a master's student studying conservation biology. My main focus is ethnobotany, though, uh, so I focus a lot on traditional plants and kind of how traditional roles play in um, kind of research settings. Great. So this this workshop is is a product of a, a cohort of students that um, that Annie and I are kind of a part of at SUNY ESF. Um, this idea of of seeing with both eyes, like this two-eyed seeing metaphor. It's not our idea. It's not a new idea. Um, it's just one that we spend a lot of time thinking about, one that, that in, in all of our diverse uh, professional like goals and aims that, that we spend a lot of time working with and implementing. Um, I, specifically, I'm in, I'm in education, but uh, members of our group are, are, come from all kinds of fields related to the environment, um, from agriculture to forestry to... Uh, ecology. Ecology, yeah. So, um, so this is a workshop that we've been working with for a little bit. Um, it's a, an idea that we um, really are, are, are becoming experts in, in in terms of doing this workshop. This is the first time we're ever applying it to an, an educational setting. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And, but uh, we're, we're coming to this as like a workshop. It's not like a how-to workshop, right? This is not a how-to topic. Um, it's, it's very much something that, that we uh, work through in progress, right? That it's very contextual, um, and, it's, and it's very, very deeply cultural. Um, so, um, do we miss this slide of all of us? I wonder if it's still at the end. Oh, you know why? Because I wasn't connected to the internet oh. when we updated. Sorry. <laughs> at the end, you'll see a slide that has a picture of, of our cohort, everybody who's contributed to this. Uh, we updated this this morning, but uh, I was not connected to the internet when I updated. So our Google Drive did not update. Um, so Annie is now going to um, uh, acknowledge where we stand. Uh, so one thing that we really like to kind of start off with is our where we stand protocol. Um, so it's making sure that you understand the indigenous land that you're on. It's kind of focusing on pre-colonial times. Oh. Some, some people were asking. Oh. Um, so it's kind of understanding like pre-colonial times and, and understanding that there, there were people before that time. Uh, so we currently stand on Shawnee land right now. Um, we do it at every place we go. We try to make sure that we understand that place is really important. Uh, we do focus a lot on land-based education and how place ties to a lot of education. A lot of time immemorial kind of stuff as well, um, focusing on how 
Um, this land uh, wasn't undiscovered. It's been here for a really long time, so uh, we just want to thank the Shawnee people, if there's anybody out there, um, for letting us be on their land. Um, kind of along with that, uh, one of probably my greatest resources in my uh, master's program right now is Keith Basso. Um, he focuses a lot on kind of Southwest tribes and really focusing on how wisdom sits in places. Um, so we're going to kind of touch a lot on that. So we hope that you kind of keep an own place in your mind that, that this kind of holds dear to you. Uh, so what he talks about is making sure that you understand the knowledge that's there. You understand the knowledge that's been in that place for a long time, for generations after generations. You don't forget the stories. You don't forget the names. Um, it is something that is tied into a lot of communities. Um, and because of that, uh, you should repeat it every time. Tell the stories. Tell the names. Know the names of that land. Uh, also know the language of that land. So trying to learn as much native language as you can. Uh, some There's 567 federally recognized tribes. Um, a lot of unfederally recognized tribes as well that are trying to get recognized. So there's a lot of input that you can do. So make sure that you do understand that the place you are, uh, because um, you know it's like water, it doesn't dry up. I think that that's a great quote. Uh, knowledge is always gonna be there, but if you don't talk about it, uh, that's when it starts to dry up. Um, so we'd like we'd like to just, to start with um, with this pre-survey questionnaire, just a way uh, of priming our brains um, and to get a sense of where we're we're all out or, or where we're all at and kind of positioning yourselves. Um, so many of you at the tables have a paper that that has this pre-survey questionnaire on it. Um, it should be a. a a piece of paper with four questions on it. Um, some of you, we, we did not expect this many people, so um, which is a great problem to have. Some of you just have blank paper because we didn't make enough copies, um, so that's on me. Um, but the questions are, are, are up here. We just kind of want to want you to take stock of um, of where you're at in, the, in this process, right? Um, and it, it is a very definitely a process. Um, so we want you to, to name a place that's important to your work as, a, as an educator, right? So thinking of your work as an educator, um, whether you're doing place-based education or not, right? All education happens in a place. Um, so think about a place that, that's important and, and name that place. Um, how much do you, do you know about indigenous relationships with that place? Um, I'm expecting this one to kind of be varied across the room, uh, which is totally okay, right? That's kind of the, the point of this workshop is, get, is getting us together. Um, and then do you use science to teach in that place? If yes, how? And this is really just trying to get us to think about how we define science. Um, that's a, uh, one of the big challenges that our workshop brings to, to classical definitions of science is, is um, how we usually define it is not the only way to define it. Uh, and then do you use indigenous science when you teach in that place? If yes, how so? Right? Is indigenous science a term that has meaning to you? Is there something that we're, I'm not collecting it. Um, you know, full sentences you don't need. Yeah, this is, we're going to return to this later after we provide a little bit of content. Thank you for that question. Well, out, out of chairs. Oh, we have a couple of extras. Yeah. Other tables have any extras? Don't mind. And, 
Annie is working on getting a, a few more chairs in here. Take about one more minute, and these are just notes for yourself. I don't have to be full sentences. Bullets are fine. said pencils down, but um, that's just that's an instinct. Um, if, you, if you still have words to put down, absolutely continue to work. Uh, we're we're going to start moving into to the next part, kind of setting up these these ideas of indigenous versus um, academic science. Um, so whenever you finish that form, um, jump back in into our full group here. Uh, so one thing that we kind of wanted to kind of emphasize was kind of the indigenous perspectives on land. Um, I've interviewed a lot of elders and kind of talked with a lot of people throughout the throughout the country really and so these are kind of the top ones that have been at the forefront of what everybody talks about. Um, so they're stewards of the land. Uh, they really take pride in that. Um, they really focus on uh, the like kind of not ownership but they understand the relationship with the land. Um, so the three R's, uh, what we like to call them is respect, responsibility, reciprocity. Uh, but we have one cohort member that likes to include uh, all of it belongs into a relationship as well. Um, so there's generational responsibilities. So it's really understanding that your generation is focusing on other generations while also standing on other generations previous before them. Um, so they also ensure land for future generations. That's always at the forefront, making sure that uh, 
future generations have the same stories, the same land, the same resources that have been there for since their creation stories. Um, sustainable use for these resources since time immemorial. Um, so that just means uh, since the beginning of their creation story. Um, and then learning from the land. Uh, we like to joke around saying that indigenous people are probably the first scientists. A lot of trial and error, a lot of kind of observations. Uh, I hear a lot of cool stories about how they used to learn from animals, kind of what plants they would eat, learning from them, and, and kind of learning from the land. And so Robin Kimmer, who is part of our cohort, um, she is my advisor. Um, she guides us a lot on our principles. Um, so she came up, uh, she kind of came up with this guidelines for the honorable harvest. And so it's kind of really focusing on how do you respect plants when you gather them? Uh, because living in the world we do live in right now, uh, we do understand that gathering is, and harvesting is an important thing. Uh, but you do also need to make sure that you do it in a responsible way. And, and that's understanding your responsibility to the land. Um, so it's a great one if you've never listened to it. She has a lot of videos on it. I do suggest that you kind of take your time and you listen to it. And so, we, we, when we talk about, right, our workshop title, title is, is Indigenous, or um, Learning to See with Both Eyes, Indigenous Science and Academic Science, so we wanted to spend some time, like, figuring out what we mean by these words. Uh, these are undoubtedly generalizations, and in many ways probably overgeneralizations in, in certain contexts. Um, and so we want to acknowledge that. At the same time, we think it's really, really important to uh, think about how these two different kinds of sciences um, are different from each other. Right? Even though many of us might find both that, that both of these exist in our practice uh, as teachers of science or as environmental educators, um, I, I think it's also important to, di to distinguish them and, and acknowledge that they come from uh, two kind of different cultural places. Um, this language is also not perfect. Right, or, or there's, there's really no great way to, to describe this, at least not in the, the English language, the difference between these, these two sciences. Um, there, there's all kinds of different words that are used to talk about how these two things come together. Um, integrate is a word that sometimes right, we want to integrate indigenous science with academic science. Um, a lot of people have issue with that language and because there's this idea that they need to maintain their cultural context. And particularly, indigenous science needs to maintain its cultural context. It can't be blended into another. Um, it loses its value that way. Um, so Robin Kimmerer really likes the word synergy, right? this idea of, of things coming together while maintaining distinct identities. And then two-eyed seeing is, is the metaphor that we've kind of settled on um, to talk about, this again, this idea of, of having both of these things uh, in a way that maintains their identity um, but, but shows partnership or some kind of uh, cooperation between the two. All right? uh, and we also like to acknowledge that these stem from multiple worldviews, that these sciences, right, these two different sciences, come from two different ways of looking at the world. And in many ways, the things that fall under each of these categories are not just about science, they're about um, worldviews, cultural worldviews in general. So, first thing we have up there under academic science, we usually say that academic science is um, reductionist and, and quantitative, right? When we say that, we're just referring to, to this uh, need to, tear, to, to reduce things to value, variables, right? That's kind of how science works. We, we try to pull apart the variables, isolate those variables, look at those variables in isolation, uh, and then when we collect data on each of those variables, we put them together to try to start to, to paint a picture. Right? And it's also really important that we assign numbers to those, to those variables. Right? That's kind of how this thing that we're calling academic science, which we sometimes call mainstream science, sometimes called Western science, um, 
it usually works by this process of reduction. So while academic science is reductionist, uh, indigenous science uh, is more holistic and qualitative. So it's making sure that you take every single aspect of whatever you're looking at and you're considering it. Uh, so a lot of people have a hard time in restoration efforts to kind of think about rocks, but they also have a hard time thinking about the cultural implications as well, and including people because after the five-year time span, who's going to take care of that restoration effort? It's probably going to be the people that are connected to that land and the people that are connected to that restoration project. Uh, academic science is usually considered generated by professionals, right? By professional scientists. These, these are the, the people who are producing legitimate knowledge, right? Um, this, this is one of the, the characterizations, the general characterizations of, of this thing we're calling academic science. Um, and so indigenous science is a more generated by the user. Um, it's a lot of the times, uh, like we said, trial and error. Uh, they end up learning a lot by uh, learning from the land or learning from the people that are around them. Um, academic science tends to be linear in its description of time, right? There's this idea on, on growth and progress. And this is something that pervades uh, many aspects of, of modern culture, right? Um, the, the economic growth, right? Theoretically, the, the, a healthy economy is one that grows forever, right? Um, there's this, this general upward trend that we aim to be on in, in academic, the academic science. Right? There's always this idea, we're better, we're gonna be better than we were before. We're gonna make improvements than, than what we were before. So while academic science tries to make these, these linear improvements. Uh, indigenous science is more secular. Um, so it's really understanding cycles, regeneration processes, um, really focusing on sustainable cycles. Uh, making sure that you understand seasonal rounds. Uh, they usually prepare one season by preparing for the next season, so they're always thinking in a seasonal round. Um, academic science is usually practiced and taught in elite settings. You have to go to a place, an institution, school, uh, a college, a university, to learn how to do science. Um, so indigenous science is usually applied to uh, daily living. Uh, a lot of people will still use traditional medicines in their daily life. They won't tend to go to doctors. A lot of them will go out with family members during the weekends. Uh, they learn a lot from the land and they use it on a regular basis. Um, academic science is kind of validated through journals and papers, right? It's transmitted through, this is our form of communication, this peer review process um, is really, really important. It's something that the, the field of science really uh, holds dear and it's how we legitimize good science, right? It's how we, we separate and sift through good science from bad science. Oral transmissions end up being extremely important in indigenous communities. It's how a lot of the knowledge is passed down from generation to generation. Uh, or oral traditions, oral histories, it's kind of depending on who you talk to. Uh, the key importance, though, is that it is transmitted through generational values and generational teachings. Um, academic science strives to be objective. Right? It, it, you're, you're supposed to take your own personal values and beliefs out of your data, right? The data is supposed to, to, to keep you uh, from entering into that or, or your values from entering into that so that you can get at, the idea is then you get at better truth, right? By being objective, um, by removing your values, and we get at a more objective truth. It's a little bit different in indigenous communities. Uh, the values are tied with everything. Um, a lot of what you do is from the values that you're taught. A lot of what you learn come from values from your family, from your tribe, from your community. And it's really, you, you can't have one without the other. 
Um, academic science, the decision-making process, the application of science, um, comes to, to these uh, more or less comparatively, you'll see short-term projects. Does anybody in here do like science research or participate in any science research? Some people, right? Okay, good, a, a handful of people. Um, actually, a lot of people. The, the average like science research grant is, is how long? Shout out some ideas. How long is the average science research grant? One year, two years, a good, right? If you get a really good one, five years, right? You could really try to get funding for, for something, it's five years, right? So, so our research grants are focused on um, relatively narrow periods of times that are reflective of our government, right? We have, we're, we're thinking about term limits, um, they're reflective of our economy, thinking about fiscal years um, and quarters, whereas indigenous science... Uh, seven generations tends to be what people tend to think about. Uh, seven generations can be thought of in many different ways. It could be the seven, seven generations that you stand upon, so your seven generation ancestors. It could be the seven generations before you, uh, that come after you. Uh, one of the new ones that I've learned was that there's three generations before you, three generations after you, and then you're the seventh generation. So it's really thinking and a holistic understanding of how uh, generational transmissions work. Good, and, and we have these three R's of academic science. We have three R's of indigenous science, if you'll see in a second. Um, academic science, right, we're, we're really academic environmentalism, the, the part of this, this field. Um, we're really big into reduce, reuse, recycle. That's kind of like the, the, the motto, and I'm sure a lot of people have different challenges that, that they bring to that motto. But getting at this idea that we're trying to reduce human impact, right, that, that human impact is the cause of a lot of environmental problems, and we're trying to, to reduce um, and remove that. Um, real quick, can I actually, does anybody have any ideas of what, what the, the three R's of indigenous science might be before Annie presents them? Any wor words that they think might fit in there based on... Um, can Annie say them? Annie hasn't said them. You well, did. oh, you already said them. <laughs> okay. You're going to hear them a lot, so I'll pound it in. Does anybody remember them? Respect, reciprocity, responsibility. Okay, great. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's your responsibility to the land. It's your responsibility that you have for the place. It's your responsibility for the language. It's your responsibility in a holistic manner. It's the respect that comes to it as well. It's respecting every single part of that area that you're in. It's respecting the people. It's respecting different sides of opinions as well. Reciprocity is showing some kind of reciprocity. So a lot of people will give tobacco, but you don't have to do that. A lot of people will say a prayer before it. It's really showing that you respect and you are understanding what this area is giving to you. Um, and so, so this is like, this is it. I mean, this is a, this is a simplification. It's a summary. Um, but these are like the ideas that, that we work with um, when, we're, when we're doing this kind of work. Um, on a daily basis, I, th I think, for, for both Annie and I and, and the rest of our cohort. Um, so this is, this is a nice summary. Um, this, is, this is the content that we're providing. This is what we're, we're thinking about for the rest of this, this workshop. Right? Uh, to help kind of put this in perspective, uh, we wanted to talk about two examples. We wanted to talk you through two examples. Um, they happen to be examples that are near and dear to, to Annie and I. Um, but each, each example tells us something about two-eyed seeing. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the example of Onondaga Lake. Um, does anybody know anything about Onondaga Lake? A couple of people, right? What are, what are some things we know about Onondaga Lake? Um, 
reputation for being super polluted. Good. If you read reading Sweetgrass or a number of other of Robin's work, um, I'm sure it it comes up. Um, and so I'm going to talk through Onondaga Lake, trying to represent a perspective or a situation where one of these sciences and really one of these worldviews um, has completely displaced the indigenous worldview, right? Where this, this new one, the settler worldview, European, whatever we, we end up calling it, um, displaced indigenous worldview. And that indigenous worldview has, um, has, has not really had a seat at the table at on Onondaga Lake. Um, whereas Annie's going to talk a little bit about a situation where uh, that's a little more aligned to two-eyed seeing, right? Um, where, where these two perspectives have, have both been held, um, and something that we consider a little more successful has come out of it. And so when we do this, we're, we're just trying to exemplify why this is so important, right? Why worldview matters so much in these, in these situations. After we do this, um, then we're going to draw implications for, for education, then we're going to get into some of the workshop part of this, right? So uh, Onondaga Lake, this is a picture of Onondaga Lake today. Um, in the, in the right-hand side of the, the bottom right-hand corner of the lake there is Destiny USA. It's a big old mall. Um, we got a lot of tourists from Canada that come down um, into Syracuse, New York to, um, to go to the mall. Um, there's an amphitheater, this little point that juts out over here. There's an amphitheater that's built here today where we have a lot of concerts. Um, these, there are also a number of major highways that go through there. So Onondaga Lake is an incredibly important political, spiritual, cultural site for um, the Onondaga Nation. The Onondaga Nation is one of the five nations that, come, that, that originally came together to make the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Um, Tuscarora, when they were displaced in the, in the early 1600s from the Carolinas, um, asked to join the Haudenosaunee, were invited to join the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. So there are now six nations, um, original five nations. Uh, Haudenosaunee, this is what they call themselves. What has settler society called them for most of history? Does anybody know what we're talking about? The Iroquois, right? We're telling you, if you've heard of the Iroquois, um, Syracuse is in Iroquois territory. And so uh, Onondaga Lake is where these five original nations, right? Somewhere on this lake is where these five original uh, nations came together um, and decided that democracy and peace was important, right? So this is... Uh, uh, somewhere between centuries and, and millennia ago that these uh, nations came together on the lake. Um, they formed a political process uh, that, that they call now democracy. It's the oldest extant democracy on earth. Uh, and how it was formed was that the, the head warriors from all of these, from these five nations pushed down a white pine tree. Um, there was a river flowing underneath it. They threw their weapons down in there. This is supposedly where the expression bury the hatchet comes from. Um, threw their weapons down there, pulled the pine tree back up, uh, and that was the, the symbol of peace. So the white pine is, is called the great tree of peace in our neck of the woods. Um, and if you look, right, so there's five original nations in the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Any of you who knows local ecology, if you pull a, a bundle of white pine needles, how many needles are in that bundle? Five, right? One for each original nation. Um, Onondaga Lake, because of this, because of this confederacy, because of the, uh, the strengths of this culture and this perspective and this political landscape, uh, was also a tremendous provisioning landscape. Um, this is a, a diagram that our, uh, one of our members of our cohort and now a, um, 
a full-fledged doctorate uh, Catherine Landis put together as part of her dissertation, documenting all the things that were, or really just a smattering of some of the things that were eaten uh, as part of the seasonal rounds around Onondaga Lake. So Onondaga Lake was providing every single one of these things. Right? And this is uh, impressive. This is like what puts people like Annie and I to sleep at night. Right? Imagining this, <laughs> thinking about these, these seasonal rounds um, and places that, that really supported people um, in some incredible ways. They talk about, modern historians talk about the Onondaga diet being one of the healthiest that the world had ever seen um, prior to, to displacement and removal. Um, and so then uh, this, is, this picture is just serving as a proxy for uh, the coming of Europeans to this landscape, the coming of a new worldview, right, and, and eventually a new science. Um, and in Onondaga Lake, in upstate New York, uh, the, it really it, it was a displacement of worldviews. Right after the American Revolution, um, George Washington sent what we call the, the Sullivan-Clinton campaign through upstate New York, um, and really as, as kind of a punishment for some of the Haudenosaunee groups and nations supporting the British, um, uh, but really a function to, to remove, to reduce native land to these little postage-sized places. Uh, and the Onondaga were, were completely displaced from, from Onondaga Lake, for the most part. Um, the Onondaga Nation today is about six miles south of the center of Syracuse, probably about a mile south of the southern border of Syracuse. Um, so, so connected to the lake uh, in terms of watershed, but not, uh, not somewhere where, where they have had any ability to... Um, have a seat at the table when it comes to, to land management around the lake. Um, thinking about these ideas of growth and progress, Syracuse is in the Rust Belt. It was part of this, this major American dream of, um, and, and very successful up until the, the crash of industrialism in the U.S., this very successful American dream of, of building, getting better, better technologies, um, better, uh, longer lifespans, and more comfortable lives. Uh, Onondaga Lake was a site of, of a lot of this in industry that was part of this dream. Um, so just, just giving you two of the, the more significant industries. Uh, soda ash <laughs> was produced on the lake. Uh, it was one of our, our first, well, our first industry was really salt production. We had these massive inland salt marshes. It's very, very productive. Tons of food coming out of these inland salt marshes. Um, which, uh, so we harvested salt there. Salt and limestone, the combination of these lends themselves to soda ash production, uh, which is a, a, a basic ingredient for all different kinds of industrial processes, like soap making, glass, um, making dyes for shirts, for uh, clothing. Uh, but the thing with soda ash, for every pound of soda ash that you produce, you produce about two pounds of, of calcium chloride, which in finite amounts really isn't, isn't that bad. Um, the amount that's on Onondaga Lake that was just left on Onondaga Lake is incredibly destructive to the ecosystem. I'll show you a picture of, of our cliffs, our white cliffs of Onondaga Lake that are just um, this calcium chloride on the next slide. Other thing to note, we had a lot of chlorine gas manufacturing here. This was one of the other things that um, really polluted the lake. So we had a tremendous amount of mercury. Right, and again, uh, I'm trying to position this as, as part of this academic science, this thing that we're calling academic science. Right? Think about the this growth, progress, um, short-term thinking. Right? Uh, Onondaga Lake is a, a, a super fun site. And when Circular came in, Onondaga Lake was one of the first designated super fun sites. Um, so it, it's had a lot of funding in terms of removal. It's considered one of the, the most polluted places in the country. These are our white cliffs. This is just uh, mostly, almost entirely calcium chloride. That There's very little biodiversity that's supported on these cliffs. There's, there's um, only a handful of plants that can grow in that environment. Um, 
And part of our Superfund management has just been, been kind of to put a barrier to prevent this stuff from leaching into the lake. And there's signs all over the lake about not being able to eat the food. Um, supposedly, children are never supposed to eat the fish. Pregnant women are never supposed to eat the fish. If you're a man, I think they say you can eat it once a month. Um, I'm not, you know, if, if a child can't eat it, I'm not, I'm not going to eat it as well. Um, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Is that this is, yeah, so these are our white cliffs. This is all calcium chloride. These are calcium chloride deposits that were not there before. Right, so this is the, the movement of, and, and these are all on the lake. These are all um, right around this point here. These, these are all waste bits. And so um, this point did not come as far out into the lake before soda ash production. Right, so there's massive, massive quantities of calcium chloride. And so again, framing this as an uh, uh, academic science perspective, a, a place where one has replaced the other, um, it's also important to keep in mind that academic science really has, right, as part of the Superfund designation, really has tried um, to, to clean this up since the 70s, since CERCLA was passed. Um, so uh, in 2017, supposedly Honeywell, the company responsible for this, was going to be done cleaning up the lake. Uh, and uh, the way they advertise this is, is now fishing, boating, kayaking. These were things, catch and release fishing, right? Um, these were things that you could now do in the region that you couldn't do before, right? Now, now the lake doesn't smell like it used to. Um, we can recreate there, right? So this, this restoration really, really values recreation, right? That, that's one of the core uses of the environment. Um, However, we also consider that a value that, that's kind of part of this, this worldview that, that was brought in by settler society. Right? That's not really acknowledging the three R's of indigenous management. Um, and so uh, we, we offer the word that's thrown around in, in our kind of circles is biocultural restoration, uh, which is a restoration that, that focuses on the, the, the culture and the ecology together and really sees them as intricately connected, as, as you cannot divorce them from each other. Right? You can't think about ecology without thinking about the cultural context of that ecology. Um, so the Onondaga Nation has put forth, a, has a plan for how they would clean the lake up um, because they do have very, very legitimate legal um, rights to this, this territory, right? It really does, they never ceded it. It's very um, illegal land dealings that, that cause them to lose Onondaga Lake. So during this process, they put together this plan, and their metrics for a clean Onondaga Lake is that we can eat the fish and we can drink the water. Right? So very different than we can boat, fish, and kayak. Eating the fish rather than catching the fish is privileged. Um, so right, uh, this, is, this is one where one worldview is, is being pushed out a, a little bit. Where one, it's very much present, um, but it's not given a seat at the table, as I said. So Annie's going to talk a little bit about our, our other situation. Uh, has anybody heard of the Mission Mountains before in Montana? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, that's my place for my educational base. Uh, I'm from that area. so. I'm going to talk a lot about it. I'm, I'm very proud of my people. Um, we've done a lot in conservation, a lot in understanding resources. Unlike Haudenosaunee people, we were colonized a little bit later in life, uh, so it kind of has affected how our landscape is. 
Um, and so Doug Allard, uh, he unfortunately died uh, probably 10 years ago, a little bit more than that. But he started the Save the Missions Committee, uh, Save the Mission Mounds Committee. He was also my dad's best friend. Um, he also main forefront of conservation. So he understood that these mountains aren't only for him, but they're for the future generations. And they know that we had to save the sacred area. And so it kind of led to this whole area of, of designing this whole wilderness area. Um, so just a little context, uh, I'm from the Flathead Reservation in Northwest Montana. Um, as you can see, we're in the green area right there. Uh, because of allotment, uh, the far picture um, shows you kind of tribal land. The tribal land is in the green, um, kind of other owned land is in the middle. It ends up being where the great egg is. So a lot of people grow potatoes, wheat, other things like that. Um, the purple is the National Bison Range, um, as well as uh, Pablo Reservoir and uh, Nine Pipes. So a lot of other conservation areas there with fish and wildlife. Uh, and then this is our entrance sign onto the reservation. Um, it has Salish and Kootenai on there. Uh, there are three tribes though, um, Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay. Uh, they were all put there. It's a confederacy with the Hell Great Treaty in 1855. Um, it gave us about 1.2 million acres. That was before 1908 with the Allotment Act though. Uh, about 60% of it was given to settlers for um, egg settlement. Um, a lot of logging and timber as well. Um, so with that, uh, our missions have been uh, the forefront. As you can tell, it's a pretty, it's a landscape that is uh, pretty dominating. Uh, it's at the forefront of everybody's mind. It's been my the backyard of, of where I've spent most of my life. Um, and so people knew that uh, you had to save it. We have a lot of creation stories or coyote stories that really focus heavily in this area. Um, prairies, valleys, mountains, everything is tied to this. So we, bazillion stories, lots of languages, a lot of language revitalization happens in there as well. So then this came this idea of saving it. So how do you end up saving it? So in uh, the early um, 1930s, uh, the Indian Reorganization Act allowed our council to kind of have a little bit more power. So one of the first things that they started to do was in 1936, they really wanted to, to kind of create a national park. They wanted it to be able for tribal people to go in there. They set 100,000 acres out there for them so they can really use it and really ensure the generational use. Didn't really go anywhere. There was some issues with some roadless areas that really kind of prohibited it. Uh, we did have the support in 1936 from our BIA superintendent, uh, which was great, but as soon as it got kind of to DC, it kind of died in there. Um, Bob, Bob Marshall came in, kind of made it a roadless wilderness area, which really prohibited anybody from going in there. Unfortunately, that wasn't a good idea, whether his intentions were good or not. Um, so it took a while to kind of get that roadless area back to, a, to have some roads in there. So then in 1974, uh, Thurman Trosper, he was a tribal member. He really kind of asked council again to make it a tribal wilderness area. And in 1975, uh, there was a huge push for timber logging. Uh, lots of companies wanted to go in there and take a lot of in our little lower buffer regions. And so there was a, a bunch of uh, yayas, so grandmas, as well as other members who really focused towards ending this logging that was about to occur. In 1976, uh, the council 
initially approved a wilderness study, and they actually did it with the University of Montana. The University of Montana really helped them kind of create a solid plan, a conservation plan for the future of what they wanted it to do. And it wasn't without their help. Um, we, I don't know if it, the wilderness area would have been there, so it was really outside ally help that really pushed this initiative forward. Um, so it took a couple years then for it to kind of finally roll around. Uh, and then the Tribal Council for, informally establishes the Tribal Council Wilderness Program, and they really wanted to oversee the whole management. And then finally, in 1982, they passed the Ordinance of 79A, and this adapted the Tribal Wilderness Program, um, and it was it's this area right here uh, on the very far right. It is the first one that was ever in the United States that was done by a tribe. Um, so it was a big accomplishment for a tribe to do that, and it was actually one of the largest lands, even against the federal government, to save them for as wilderness area. It's about 91,000 acres. It covers elevation from 4,000 to 10,000 feet. McDonald Peak is a, our highest peak. It's a little bit over 10,000 feet, uh, as well as 34 miles long. It's five miles wide. We have nine streams, 113 lakes because of Glacial Lake Missoula, but we were actually some of the headwaters for the Columbia Basin, so a lot of our water ended up going to the Pacific Ocean. So our my ancestors and, and my, my father and my grandma actually knew that this was important because we were, we were feeding a whole lot of people and we were, had a lot of water to save. So one of the main, as you can see, it's a dominating picture, especially in the winter with the snow on there. Um, it was really protection and preservation of the area's natural conditions and perpetuity. They really wanted to make sure that forever our tribal people, non-tribal people, could have this mountain, this dominating landscape. Because uh, as soon as you come across uh, one of the hills, it's the only thing that you see for a long ways. So some of the management practices that happens now uh, is they have a special grizzly bear management zone. It's about 10,000 acres. It was established along with the establishment of in 1982. Uh, you know, there's a lot of insects happening, uh, so it's where they get a lot of their food. Uh, so it's closed off in certain times of the year to allow for grizzly management and allow for their sustainability as well. Uh, while the missions is a hard tr area to traverse, uh, there are still a lot of trailless areas. Uh, they do believe that kind of free roaming is good. I mean, you don't really necessarily need a trail all the time. So there are some trails, there are some lakes as well that you can get to, but a lot of it is pretty trailless. Uh, they also have the North Fork Post Creek fishing closure. Uh, so we had a lot of overfishing with our trout. Uh, so it is closed during certain times of the year to allow spawn reproduction and to really ensure that uh, we're having fish for future generations. And so why is this important for tribal people and also non-tribal people? Uh, I think living in Syracuse for a while, I think I miss the mountains the most. I miss being in the wilderness. I miss being in nature. I think Tommy agrees with that as well. I think when you are in a certain area for too long, a lot of cities, uh, you tend to forget what soil feels like on your feet. You tend to forget what plants smell like. So it actually it increases your noises of modern society. You get out for a while. I think it's like three to four days to reset your body, uh, your body cycle. Kind of gets you going back again. Um, so a lot of tribal people also face a lot of historic traumas. Uh, because colonization, you know, uh, a lot of boarding schools, we had the St. Ursuline School right on the Flathead Reservation. 
a lot of issues that come from that. Um, so this actually gets people a peaceful sanctuary to go back to, really connects them to a spiritual renewal. A lot of people will go sweat in there. A lot of traditional ceremonies happens in those mountains. A lot of hunting and fishing as well. Um, a lot, what we we're talking about with uh, Onondaga's seasonal round. A lot of seasonal eating, a lot of making sure that you are getting the protein that you were used to in your generations before. A lot of moose, a lot of elk. Um, we do get bison from Yellowstone area because of treaty rights. Making sure you can gather plants, where you can gather plants and things like that. Uh, our keenless well, water begins with us. So making sure that we do have clean water, for futurations to come. We do have great air quality as well. Uh, we have a lot of carbon points. Everybody knows, everybody's looking for carbon points. We get a lot of them. We get a lot of people coming and trying to buy our carbon points. Um, Tony Inkashola, who is uh, somebody that I work closely with, he is the culture committee director for the Salish Kalispell Culture Committee. He's a really great guy. Um, he said that the, we protect these areas not for us, but for our ancestors, our elders, and our children. And that was at the forefront of this whole thing, is making sure that this is here for future generations and understanding that uh, we're not the only generation. There's going to be a lot of people after us. Um, it's also made us the leader in a lot of conservation movements. Uh, my tribe, CSKT, Confederation of Tribes, is at the forefront of a lot of uh, clean movements as well as a lot of other conservation movements. Um, it also brings a lot of non-tribal non members to our reservation. Uh, it's pretty small, uh, don't got a huge population, but it does bring them in a good way to get them reconnected back into the land. And so just thinking about that, um, we're going to kind of start moving into our, you kind of see two different worldviews and like kind of how that can change resources as well as worldviews onto how to look at a landscape. We're going to kind of jump into our next section. Uh, and let me first, thank you so much for letting us talk about our places. Um, in a second, right, we asked you to, to start by thinking about some of your places. So in a second, we're going to ask you to, to jump right back into that. Before we do that, um, I'd like to take everything we kind of just talked about um, and think about what it what it has to do for environmental education. This is this is something I think a lot uh, about a lot. Um, so I kind of just like to crowdsource for for just a second. If I'm if I'm asking you um, what is two-eyed seeing or why is it relevant to environmental education, what are some reasons that you see it being important, relevant, useful? Okay, good. Inclu inclusion is a big goal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, uh, the, the one in the back and then the one in the front, thank you. Um, so, my experience has been that, That's a, a great way of, of framing it. Were you going to add something? Good, right? And to position things as, as Eurocentric as well. This allows us to say this, the, the, that idea is part of one worldview. Yeah. Right. 
that's why we choose the metaphor that we do, right? This bifocal vision gives you a, a better picture. Um, for, for me personally, it, it's really, it comes down to these things that, a lot of these things that us as environmental educators and interpreters and outdoor educators fight like tooth and nail for to integrate into our education system on a, on a daily basis, right? These things that, that we've been really, really trying to integrate um, are inherent, are already built into to a two-eyed seeing approach to education, right? Um, things that Aldo Leopold had to like really take his lifetime to, to think about um, are things that, that had been there for, for centuries, right? right. The indigenous values um, are very much aligned with some of the land ethic, if you're familiar with, with uh, Aldo Leopold. Um, and so for me, like going to something where, where these values are inherent, where they come naturally, where, where they're supposed to be there, um, it, it, it makes it it's so valuable, so important to use, to think about two I'd seen going through with this. Is it a question? No, I just wanted to kind of, I guess, where I'm from, I'm from Mexico, so mm -hmm. it's um, Thank you for sharing, and, and I feel like you've really hit the, yeah. the nail on the head of what, what we're trying to do. Um, it is also important to acknowledge, right, this is not, this is not like, this doesn't erase uh, colonialism, right? That two-eyed approach is, is a partnership, as, as Betty Lyons, who's a, an Onondaga clan mother, um, says, right, you, it doesn't erase a genocide, right? We, we can, we're, not, we're not in the business of doing it. This is, this is a 
one path forward, right? One path, this is where we're at, um, this, is, this is a way forward. So I'm um, just a, 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 um, repeating what I had said before, uh, two-eyed seeing, right, these values of like knowledge combined with value, right, knowledge that we teach, and EE, we teach um, so that people are informed to, to, to make decisions uh, about uh, creating a healthier planet. Uh, these are things that are inherent into um, in, in this two-eyed seeing approach, right? Reducing our impact as we learn our relationships, right? Learning your relationship, this is what David Sobel was arguing in the, in the 90s, right? Kids need to learn their relationship first. They need to create a relationship um, before they, they learn about the catastrophes of, of humans across the planet, right? Um, before they learn about the, burn, the rainforest. Um, and place-based values, big deal in environmental education, things that are very, very, held very, very close to the heart in two-eyed seeing. And this is just a quote from uh, Margaret McKeon, who's one of the, the, the first scholars to really look at two-eyed seeing as an environmental education idea in, in 2012. She says, environmental education is about restoring our lives, the land, and our relationship to it. Through two-eyed seeing, it also can become a, uh, it can also become focused on interconnection between people's ways of thought between human beings and the natural world, right? There's this idea that two-eyed seeing really should be coming natural to, to the field of EE. There's, there's so much in agreement there. Yes, is there a question? I'm sorry, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Um, I just wanted to point out that, um, saying like two-eyed seeing or why would you want to be blind or see from one eye is quite ableist. And um, that a lot of the stuff that's being talked about with like this indigenous knowledge yeah. is not really about seeing, it's about like, feeling, connecting, being present, so just the language that we use is really important. Thank you for putting that up. And we we, we actually thought about yeah. it, and I, I kind of gave the group. I was like, you know, if we take this to NAAEE, somebody's probably going to challenge us on on the two-eyed sand. Thank you so much. It, it truly, it's it's not absolutely not a perfect metaphor by any means, and 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 it's in many ways an oppressive metaphor as well. And two-eyed seeing actually came from a First Nations in Canada. So if you want to learn more about it, the Mi'kmaq is doing some great work with it. It came from Indigenous elders about two-eyed seeing. So it kind of has a, a root in indigenous systems, uh, where a lot of them don't tend to think of generalized terms that we have now. Uh, Two-eyed seeing is just making sure that you understand that you can have one lens, you can have one thought, you can have one opinion, but make sure you include other people at that table. So just seeing ends up being like a great point because a lot of us tend to be very visual people, um, tends to kind of be at the forefront of what we think about. And if you want to do some more research, the First Nations uh, in Mi'kmaq, they're doing some great things on two-eyed seeing as well. Um, we're more than open to thinking about different metaphors, different language. Um, okay, so um, let's uh, return. I'd, I'd like you to, for, for maybe like five minutes, um, I was going to have this be like a think, pair, share. I think we'll just do the, the pair and share part of it. Um, would you turn to somebody sitting near your table or a couple of people sitting at your table, look at the place that you originally put, um, and uh, think about these questions in terms of that place now. Uh, how would you describe the story of that place through both lenses, and really what information do you need to know, right? In, in order to do that, to tell this narrative, um, what information do you need? Um, what is your, as an educator, what is, whether you're doing place-based education or not, what is your responsibility to that place, right? Like I said, all education happens in a place. Uh, what is your responsibility to the place that you put down there? And then how might you go about teaching reciprocity? Which is one thing that I, I think environmental educators really um, love at the same time that our, our education system, our ideals are not set up to, to really deal with reciprocity, to, to allow that to happen in classrooms or in a lot of our settings. So would you turn to somebody next to you um, and talk about your place through these questions? Take about five minutes to do this. 
Get your get your last words out, and then let me get let me get attention back up here. I see a few. All right, um, we're gonna move we're gonna move into into the next part really quickly. Would um, would some people mind sharing? Uh, was there was there are there any responses to these questions that were particularly um, thought provoking that that people had? Um, Anybody want to share anything from their conversation? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thank you for bringing up ecology. I mean, ecology is a science that, that had to fight to be considered science, right? That it took a long time for, for that to happen, um, very, and for, for reasons because it occupies a very similar space. Yeah. Any other um, thoughts that kind of came out of these conversations in response to this? Yeah. There is a time when there's an educational mandate in education for all that needs to be nationwide. Mm. I love Indian Law. It's a great program. <laughs> oh, it's a program. It's an Indian based program that's taught through most schools. Yeah, K twelve. What is yeah. it? What is it called again? Indian Ed for all. Indian Ed for all. Yep. Yeah, it's mandated. It's mandated. Um, so she talked about Indian Ed for All. It's a mandated program for K through 12 in Montana. Um, it's really pushing for Indian education um, as well as uh, proper Indian education and, and how do you teach uh, Indian education to a lot of, there are seven reservations in Montana huge population, um, so making sure that at least that that is heard, and so it'd be great to have it in, uh, there's no federally recognized tribes in Kentucky, so making sure that it does reach kind of a nationwide scale. Right. So we have um, we have a, a little bit less than a half an hour left. Um, what we'd like to, to use a lot of this time for is, is really this um, strategizing, right, putting our, our heads together. Um, and so Annie and I are going to go around to, to a couple of different tables. What we would like you to do at your table uh, is, like I said, strategize, right? So um, come up with a, a list of, of teaching two-eyed, for teaching two-eyed science in your educational setting. Um, and uh, you might think about activities, assessment, topics, uh, the way that you frame, right, the underlying philosophy of certain topics, right, how you're, you're framing these things. Um, are you positioning them as uh, European or Western or settler? Um, or is there better language to use? Uh, or you might put um, some, some writing or discussion prompts. Uh, as you think about this, think, please also keep in mind how you, you frame the difference between academics and indigenous science, right? Um, how you would think you would talk about this with um, whatever group you're working with. 
Um, how do you give place a space to teach, right? This idea of place as co-teacher or place as elder um, in, in terms of guiding you through your educational process. How do you acknowledge the people indigenous to a place, um, particularly if they're displaced, right? Are there any Kentucky educators in here? Anybody from Kentucky? A few people, right? Yeah, um, it's a particularly challenging environment to, to think about uh, indigenous science because uh, no federally recognized nations exist, right? It's, it's, there's no Indian, federally in, recognized Indian land here. Um, and how do you motivate participants to value, respect, re, uh, responsibility, and, and reciprocity? Um, so some of you are at tables that are labeled with, with formal or non-formal um, educational settings. We're not trying to restrain you to those. Um, the groups that are not labeled, um, those are our extra tables, uh, you can think, you can choose to, to constrain yourself to either thinking about formal settings like schools, universities, uh, or non-formal settings, parks, nature centers, uh, or, you know, I'm, I'm, it feels like we're going to have a mishmash of both in, in all groups, which is okay, right? We're, we're interdisciplinary here. Do I think, right. Um, so um, with that, let's take, let's take about like um, 20, 15 to 20 minutes to do that, and then we'll kind of share some of the ideas, and then we'll wrap up here. All right? Don't think like that For time's sake, I think we are, we're going to pivot into, um, into, into kind of a wrap-up here. I know there, were, there was a lot of really amazing things that were, were said in these groups. I'd love to collect these posters um, to see what eventually got put on them. Um, for now, we will... Some groups didn't, had more of a conversation than a poster, I see. Um, for now, I think I'm going to turn it over to, to Annie, who's kind of just going to try to tie some of these loose ends together. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of moving forward uh, in the future with two lenses, so focusing mainly on indigenous and then your academic science as well. A lot of what I'm coming from is the synergy paper that uh, Robin Kimmerer wrote. Uh, you know, she's one of my advisees. She's my advisor, so I tend to focus a lot on her. I, she comes up with some great things. Um, so it's clear and disciplined al analysis on how TEK and academic science are grounded in different worldviews. So it's really understanding that they're two different worlds. Um, you have to understand in the beginning to make sure that then in the end you have a clear synergy on how to make that work. Um, there's two divergences, there's some similarities as well. So making sure you understand that so you can move forward. Um, so understanding that, uh, you know, Native people have been here for a long time. Uh, they understand how the land works. They usually have a lot of trial and error, great observations, um, great understanding of how a rose will lead to some bison being born. So it ends up being like this intergenerational history that ends up leading to a lot deeper relationship with plants, animals, how everything works in a cycle. So asking them is a great idea. And one of the tables that I sat on kind of had a, a question about that, about how do you kind of incorporate the things that we're teaching you here in, if you're not an indigenous person and you, where is that boundary? Um, and so what we want to say is uh, the value system that we're trying to teach here is a lot of respect, a lot of responsibility, a lot of reciprocity, and kind of how is your relationship to that then? So what is your relationship to the land? What is your relationship to that place? 
Um, if you're, uh, one of the great things is no straws. That's a great idea. I mean, I think that the little things that you can do, if you can teach people that when you're walking through a city and you see a tree, talk about it being a living tree. Talk about it being something that is actually personable rather than aesthetically pleasing. Um, there are certain ways that you can incorporate this without needing indigenous people here. Um, indigenous people make up about one to two percent of the United States population. We rely heavily on indigenous allies. Um, so teaching these values to people will really get people a lot of reconnection to land is important as well. So really pushing that as well. So what we're teaching here, you can really incorporate into other areas of your expertise without actually needing an indigenous person there. But it is always great to kind of have someone there if you want to talk more about tribal uses of plants, animals, and things like that as you move forward in an area. Um, so it's really understanding as well. It's a holistic engagement. Uh, so it's your mind, body, emotion, spirit, everything about you, your culture, your traditions, your family. Uh, my family is a heavy part of my research. Uh, I interviewed everyone I could. And so it, it's just who it is. Um, our people are so intertwined as a, as a community that it, it's hard to kind of think of it only as the intellect, uh, which is kind of what environmental science has been. You kind of take out your mind, your body, your spirit, things like that, but include it. Include everything that you value into your system because it's going to make you more connected and it's going to make you want to kind of increase that other people's connection to your values. And everybody likes to kind of feel validated and kind of feel like what they're teaching can actually move forward in a positive way. Um, so it's also recognizing that these approaches and responsibilities are interconnected. There's no way to separate them. The values that come from plants, the values that come from animals, the values that I learned from my people, they're always going to be with me. But then also means that you, you are in charge of that cultural protection. So you're in charge of making sure that you're using the knowledge appropriately. Um, I work uh, with fish and wildlife. So a lot of what I do is trying to get the history out in a way that's truthful. Truthful history, making sure that you're doing it in a way that is appropriate. Um, so appropriation versus appropriate, you know, I think that you guys kind of understand that line of it. But I mean, knowledge values can easily be, be thrown out through each re research, education, and teaching settings. Um, and lastly, uh, it's kind of understanding that uh, the secular and the sacred can simultaneously coexist. Uh, I think that um, a lot of the plants that I work with, I work with aromatic plants, which means I work with a lot of ceremonial plants. It's very sacred, sacred plants that uh, build sweat grass, build sweat lodges. They're in longhouses, and so it, it's sacredly tied. But they also have a lot of um, ecological benefits as well. So making sure that you understand that the sacred is okay to have in certain settings, as well as appreciating them. And I think that uh, I hope that you guys learned a lot. Uh, we've been doing this for a few years now, so. It's been really great, um, and so I, we just kind of wanted to touch base back on our previous slide that we wanted to show you with all of our cohort. There's a lot of them that help us kind of with this whole thing, um, and there have been some people that come and go, and, and so it's not just Tommy and I. There's a whole people behind us. There's a whole community behind us. There's a Center for Native People and the Environment at SUNY ESF that really helps us. There's my own community. There's Tommy's community behind him as well. We're all of this, we try to tie together, and we really hope that you kind of got 
at least some of the values out of this so you can continue forward and teach this to the, te the people because you're the teachers. You're, you're the one who are responsible to kind of put this out there in a way that, that we hope we helped you understand. Thank you, Slide. Oh. There you go. Uh, so, Lem Lunch. And then. Um, oh, we didn't change. Oh, yeah. We didn't move it. That's all right. <laughs> well, this is, this is just thank you in, in a number of, of, of these folks, um, in, including myself, uh, native language. Um, so there's Potawatomi, Salish, Gaelic, or Irish, as it's called in Ireland, Spanish, uh, mainstream Russian, and uh, Tuscarora. Um, so thank you all for, for coming out, as Annie said. Um, I am, tomorrow I'm in Thoroughbred 2, I just looked it up. Um, so one of the horse rooms. Um, so if you're interested, 8.30, Thoroughbred 2, tomorrow morning. It's 10 o'clock, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes, and five stars. Five stars. Just because, five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah, and you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep, mm -hmm. and we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. But if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but indianscienceshow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W.wordpress.com. Thank you for lending us your ears, and now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>